You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome, everybody, to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, and I'm here with Colin Campbell and Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer. Today, we'll talk about the continuing election. We'll talk about uh, potential transition uh, as we have new office holders uh, starting next month. And we'll talk about a special session that looks to be held in the second week of uh, December. Uh, We'll also talk a little bit about a big court decision in redistricting. Uh, And of course, we'll have headliner of the week. Uh, But first, the election. Uh, Roy Cooper's margin over Pat McCrory after the November 8th election is now up above 10,000. And although it could fall down below that again, uh, that means it's right now outside the range of a statewide recount. Uh, and that leaves the main, uh, that leaves the, a Durham County votes as basically the uh, last stand uh, for McCrory as he tries to uh, um, find a way to uh, find votes that, that could make up that large margin. Uh, Colin, you've been following this. Uh, you're going to write. You're, you've been writing about the uh, debate over whether Durham should recount these votes. Uh, what happened this week? Yeah. So the current status is that uh, Durham is going to have to uh, do a recount. Um, currently, the deadline is set for Monday night at 7 p.m. Uh, Durham was meeting Friday morning to talk about uh, seeking an extension. And as I understand it, they're trying to get an extension so they get until um, Wednesday to do their recount. Um, so that's all following the State Board of Elections meeting this week. They had about a two, two-and-a-half-hour hearing on whether or not to do a recount in Durham. Uh, of course, the Durham Board of Elections had received the same request to have a, a partial recount. This would just be of the... About 90,000 or so ballots that were cast, mostly during early voting um, and a few during um, election day at specific precincts where the ballot machines basically, they have a memory card in them and the memory card was working fine, but because of the number of ballots that were being uh, recorded on the memory cards, when they plugged it into their software system, the software system had difficulty reading it. So instead of uh, going through the software system, uh, the elections workers on election night uh, took the written tapes that are printed out from the machines and sort of read those off and, and calculated those. Uh, they did that in a fairly open fashion with a, a Democrat and a Republican uh, observer uh, carefully watching. Um, and that ultimately is why the Durham County votes came in so late on election night. Now, that ended up being the uh, major point of the contention at the uh, State Board of Elections meeting. Uh, the uh, consensus from the board seemed to be there There wasn't any evidence that anything really went wrong in how the votes were calculated in a way that would have uh, created inaccurate results. But the concern was the perception that on election night, you're sitting at home, you're looking at the election results, and until about 1130, it looked like Governor Pat McCrory was winning a second term. Hit 1145, that's when the rest of the Durham votes uh, were added to the system. And of course, Durham being a very heavily Democratic county, that turned things the other direction um, towards Roy Cooper, and, and he's been up in the count uh, ever since then. But that seems to be the the concern. And there was one uh, sort of very interesting analogy made by uh, James Baker, who's one of the Republican members of the uh, Board of Elections and a retired judge up in Madison County. He talked about how uh, some people who are watching might have thought that uh, this was like the corrupt elections of uh, decades past in Madison County, where you would count the votes, 
and then whoever the, the party machinery was, if their candidate was not winning, they'd figure out how many votes they needed to fix that, and they just add that many votes to the, the tallies. So his he was clear to say that that's not what he thought happened in Durham, but that people might think that, and therefore the recount was a, a good idea on that standpoint. Um, Roy Cooper and the Democrats attorney was there uh, arguing that there was no need for the recount because under state law, you do have to have evidence of irreg- irregularities or misconduct, I think is how it's it's worded in order to order a recount. Um, state law doesn't let you to uh, do it, allow you to do a recount just because you feel like it. Um, so the uh, ultimate order from the Board of Elections uh, referred to sort of the public perception that there may have been problems and, and due to the way the, the votes were reported. So that's the sort of how they made that work uh, from a recount standpoint in Durham and, and ordered that very much so on party lines with the three Republicans uh, voting for the recount and the uh, two Democrats uh, voting fairly uh, vociferously against. One of them, I think, warned of the president of the recount and um, that's a precedent that they're going to get tested on Saturday because uh, Bladen County has a uh, elections protest in which uh, one group, not the original group that was seeking an absentee ballot thing there, but another group wanted a recount or actually revote. Um, and while they may not necessarily have uh, a whole lot of concrete evidence uh, on that behalf, uh, the State Board of Elections may feel compelled because they've ordered this other recount to also do one in, in Bladen. So we'll see how that pans out on Saturday. But lots and lots of uh, recounty action in the next couple of days. Craig, since it's, it sounds like it's mainly being uh, posed as a matter of perception, do you think there's much chance that the margins could change when you do a recount like this? Is there is there anything that the McCrory people have raised as a possibility for, uh, you know, problems that that would exist with these ballots? Um, what, I'm trying to think of what could change the, the outcome here. Hmm. I don't know that anything could really change the outcome. I mean, in, if you're talking about a statewide recount, I mean, even that, uh, they don't usually, recounts don't usually move the needle very much. I mean, that's just traditionally, especially with today's technology, despite the you know, problems like happened in Durham, uh, it just makes things more accurate generally. So you don't have that kind of human error factor. But, uh, you know, and the numbers we're talking about, even the in Bladen County, just are not, they're like a couple hundred or something, I think. Yeah, that's the, the absentee ballots, which was sort of the original complaint right. there that right. people had witnessed absentee ballots, or not witnessed absentee ballots, but assisted the voters in filling out their absentee ballots, didn't sign the disclosure that they were uh, required to sign, and, and ultimately the union re- resulted in a bunch of uh, write-in votes that had the same handwriting in them. Uh, so that's sort of the the issue there, right? And but then, it's still only a hundred, couple right, hundred ballots, right? And then the, whatever this new uh, this new complaint is, that does, we don't really know how many people that might involve. Yeah, it's, that's that complaint is a weird one uh, because on for part of that, it, one interesting aspect of that is so the original complaint was. Uh, sort of promoted by the uh, Republican Party. I don't know exactly if uh, one of their members was the person filing it, Um, but that targeted a group called the Bladen County Improvement Association, which got some money from the state Democratic Party to do get-out-the-vote efforts, and they were the ones who were sending people around to collect these absentee ballots. The group uh, and members involved in the Bladen County Improvement Association, they're involved with this other protest that's sort of a counter-protest, and this was one... Only came to my attention yesterday, um, but was filed about a week or so ago and then was heard by the Bladen County Board of Elections, uh, which dismissed it earlier this week uh, and then was then appealed up to the state Board of Elections level. 
So that one is filed essentially by some members of this Bladen County Improvement Association, along with a Democrat who is running for county commissioner down there. They basically have two allegations. One is that there were some problems with the software voting equipment and some sort of glitch. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the um, Durham County uh, protest, although in this case there's there are very little specifics as to what exactly happened in that regard, and evidently the, the Bladen County uh, elections folks didn't see that there any merit to that. But the other aspect of theirs, and this was one that uh, evidently the, the Bladen County board really couldn't consider because the state is investigating this absentee ballot issue, but this Bladen County group that promotes Democrats is saying that uh, somebody was go- some, a group of people was going around um, and not only helping people fill out absentee ballots, but f- forging them. So they would go to your house, they would get you to sign an authorization or a request for an absentee ballot. They would then mail it in for you. And I guess it's some, what they're alleging is that at some point these people came back, took the ballots that had been mailed back to these people uh, who'd requested absentee ballots, filled it out for them, and then submitted it. So people who thought they were getting an absentee ballot in the mail never got one. They come in on election day and are told that they've already voted. Um, so and these they, were supposedly people who were getting paid to Yeah, that these these people who register. were going around and getting people to fill out these forms were their pitch was, Hey, if you help me by doing this, yeah. I'm gonna get fifty bucks. Yeah. And so people the people who are um, involved in this and the the complaint uh, that the State Board of Elections has actually includes um, signed documents, signed, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, letters from the people who are affected by this who say that uh, essentially they lost the opportunity to vote because this group uh, ostensibly forged their ballots. Um, so this is not a, a challenge of an individual voter. This is would be a protest that there's some systemic problem. I, yeah, I essentially that the, there's criminal activity going on. And, that, and that's my understanding as well with the, the other protests is that um, ultimately, if if people were filling out someone else's ballot on their behalf and didn't mm-hmm. go through the disclosure process, then that could potentially be some sort of criminal activity. And, and Republican Party's uh, Dallas Woodhouse uh, told me something to the effect of he feels like uh, if these allegations prove to be true, then people need to be going to jail over this. I don't right. know if that's actually what the law would yeah. dictate, but certainly it's it's fairly serious. And um, the, the Bladen County group is saying that uh, in the second protest that they don't know how many ballots were affected by this. So that's why they're seeking either a recount or a revote, that they don't know who may have been disenfranchised other than the people that have come to them and that, that are part of this complaint. Uh, so it's it could get pretty messy and complicated it's, in the Saturday it's, Board of Elections it's meeting. It's kind of hard to predict what might happen. It just feels like at this late stage they aren't going to let – they're not going to do a recount of one whole county. I mean, I, we'll see, but it doesn't seem like it. Still, and so short of that, the votes we're talking about aren't going to change the margin. And Yeah, Cooper, and that's something that the, the Board of Elections does consider is part of the law says that they have to look at – you know, will these sort of irregularities have the impact have of changing yeah. the outcome? Right. And I think particularly in Bladen County, right. with so few votes involved, it's going to be very hard to make the argument that right. somehow this could make up for that 10,000 vote gap between the two right. candidates for governor. Right. How do we get here where we're only talking about two different counties? Because originally the allies of the McCrory campaign had challenged these in all kinds of different counties. Yeah, right? so there so, was, uh, originally they'd sent out uh, press releases indicating that um, either the McCrory campaign or, or different Republicans were going to be filing uh, complaints in, I think, 50 or 53 counties. Um, and all these were, there were a few involving absentee ballots uh, sort of claiming that there might have been a similar situation uh, to Bladen County, but they didn't really have any evidence for that other than that 
there were some get out the vote operations funded by uh, Democrats there. They, they didn't know that they'd done anything wrong necessarily, but that the same people were involved in in sort of witnessing a lot of the same ballots. So that was about 10 or 12 counties that uh, were supposed to be getting those complaints, according to the McCrory campaign. And then in about 50 others, um, there were going to be complaints that either dead people had voted, um, that convicted felons who were ineligible to vote had voted, and that people had voted in multiple states. Uh, now, a number of those were indeed filed. A number of them were uh, rejected by county elections boards, often for lack of evidence. There were a few cases where a county election board reviewed that and determined that indeed the complaints were correct, that there was a felon uh, who was ineligible and, and did vote. Um, and the county boards in those cases uh, sort of pulled those ballots, uh, basically revoked those person's uh, ability uh, to have participated in, in this election. So that was all underway. And then I guess earlier this week, I was trying to figure out, so what's the status of all these things? So I made myself a little spreadsheet with all the different counties that they'd said they were going to file stuff in and, and sort of check that with what had been filed and what had been reported across the state and fairly quickly found out that in a lot of the counties where the McCrory campaign said that they were going to file complaints, they actually hadn't. Uh, you call the county board of elections and they told me, yeah, we, we heard that there was going to be a complaint coming, but we didn't get one. And now it's too late for one pretty much. Um, so I find that out. And then um, I was trying to figure out appeals, too, because initially uh, when these Republican-controlled county boards of elections started denying these, uh, Ricky Diaz from the McCrory campaign told me they planned to appeal all of them. Uh, so I called the state board of election and say, you know, have you gotten any appeals? And the only appeals that they were working with involved uh, Durham and Bladen counties. There was no other uh, county-level protest that had made its way up to the, the state board of election all of which sort of became moot a few hours after I finished that story uh, because the State Board of Elections acting on uh, what was in a, a meeting that I think, Craig, you covered, but it was very hard to understand exactly what they were ruling on how a, counties yeah, should handle it was very protracted and kind of dense, and afterwards we were all trying to get clarification. And they gave us some clarification, but it, it was an odd process because then it was several days later when they issued an order sort of putting in writing what they said they had agreed upon. Uh, and that was, you know, ultimately that challenges couldn't be, uh, weren't going to be challenges of individual voters were not going to be. Counted. Yeah, that you, you essentially, uh, their, their ruling was that you had to have done that before the election in order for it to time count. Frame, yeah. um, so their directive to all the counties was one, not to remove anybody's votes on the basis of a protest like that, but to go back if a county had taken a protest like that and removed somebody, um, then they had to put those votes back in. I understand there was some consternation, I think, in Buncombe County where they, they apparently, the, the uh, local board was doing that, but was sort of uh, complaining that they, they didn't want to have to do it, having gone through this whole process to rule that somebody was ineligible to vote. Um, so what you end up with is uh, that these counties are all resolved now, these protests are, are, are no longer active, but at the same time, you do have a number of situations where now someone who was an active felon or perhaps had died before election day or um, maybe there was some evidence that they voted twice, those votes are counting now. Uh, they will be included in the, the final count under this order from the State Board of Elections, which is something that uh, Dallas Woodhouse and the, the NC Republican Party were not thrilled with when they had a press conference earlier this week. They're sort of accepting that ruling, but noting that there is probably need to revisit that whole process going forward, possibly through some sort of legislative action uh, going ahead, because that you have all those people from the protest that are put back in. But there's also that, uh, if you recall, the 
uh, IT guy for the State Board of Elections who did his own uh, search without any sort of authorization of a database that they had for um, active felony convictions. And, and his finding was that there were something like 300-plus um, actively serving felons who had voted during early voting, not even Election Day. But ultimately, the State Board opted not to do anything with that, saying, you know, it was too late and one there had not been any protest on that. So that's all still out there. And, and we'll certainly give the Republicans plenty of ammunition uh, going into the legislative session if they're trying to make some changes to the election process surrounding how this all went down with these protests. But uh, ultimately, what the dismissal has meant is that we're really just down to Durham and Bladen counties now. And we've been, I'm sorry, we've been watching these counties report all week long, kind of gear as they march toward this magical uh, 10,000 vote number. But it's not really a horse race. It's not, it wasn't who gets there first. It's when all the votes are counted, does Cooper maintain the the more than 10,000 vote margin he has now, yeah. precluding the governor from asking for a recount. Yeah, and it it's, looks like that's going to happen ultimately. It does. The, the, the governor has said now that he's gotten his rec- Durham recount that he was not planning to seek a statewide. looks like there'll still be a statewide recount in the state auditor's race, but people probably are less concerned about that than the, the governor's race. But yeah, I, I noticed that people very actively looking this week at that number count on the State Board of Elections website. And I I think there was some misinformation that somehow this was like the the price is right. And when you hit 10,000, you you get to be the winner. And Pat McCrory, you know, goes back to Charlotte immediately. But that's not actually what happens. No, it got a little maddening as the number kept going up. Then it'll go down and it'll go up again. The different counties would report, then not report. You know, if you're focused on the map, it was pretty uh, frustrating. There's a couple of legislators who are also going to have recounts, right? Yeah, so uh, I think it's just two. It's two House races. One is uh, Marilyn Avila's seat in Raleigh. She's a Republican and is appears currently to have lost to uh, Joe John, who's a Democrat, and that district is, I think, parts of North Raleigh. Uh, so that's going for a recount. Um, I think it's a fairly large vote margin, but it's within the, the 1% margin that you can ask for a recount. Uh, and then over east of here in, I think, Wilson and Pitt counties, uh, Representative Susan Martin's seat, uh, she looks like she's won a second term, but it is really close. And her Democratic challenger, uh, I think Charlie Pat Ferris was the guy's name, one of those great double first names, um, is asking for a recount there. A couple other situations that were close did not end up with recounts. Uh, Susan Evans, who was challenging Senator Tamara Beringer, a Republican in Western Wake County, she announced uh, this week that she's not going to seek a recount, even though she's eligible for one. And I think the same goes for uh, Democrat uh, Representative Joe Sam Queen way out in the western part of the state. Um, he had a uh, loss to a Republican by the name of Mike Clampett up there um, in what I think was a rematch of a ongoing back and forth b- between uh, Queen and, and the Republicans up in that area. So it looks like he's pretty much conceded. And, and we're just down to the two recounts uh, in legislative races. And— there's another wrinkle to all this, right? Because there's a court case in federal court uh, that could postpone. Could it postpone the election further? The, the deadline, uh, the state deadline is next Friday? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out uh, at this point. And hopefully we'll have a, a story in the paper about that over the weekend uh, with, with at least some uh, probably speculation, but uh, some possible scenarios uh, to that. So Civitas Institute, uh, if you're not familiar with the case, has sued the State Board of Elections over same-day registrations. What they want is for uh, same-day registration voters to have their votes removed from the count, all of them. I think that's about 90,000 votes. Um, 
and then restored only once all of the mail verifications have come back. So the way same-day registration works is that uh, you can go in during early voting and you can register to vote and vote on the same day. But what you have to do is give them either a photo ID or a utility bill or something that proves you do live where you say you live and are eligible to, to vote at that address. Um, and then after you vote, they'll send a, uh, what's called mail, mail verification, where they send a, a voter registration card to your home. And if the mail returns it, then that sort of complicates things. And they have to do some more work to determine if you are indeed eligible to vote at that address. So what Civitas is saying is that uh, until that mail verification is done, you shouldn't be able to count all these votes, um, that you need to wait and ensure that these people were, were indeed eligible through that process. Uh, so that's going into uh, the court case next week. The hearing is now scheduled for Thursday of next week, is originally scheduled for this Friday. And I guess the end result could be that a certain number of these are just thrown out because you can't verify the addresses. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, the, the historic numbers on that is like maybe two percent four percent at most of those that get thrown out because of addresses um, there's some consternation about that because uh, as several people have pointed out to me if you were registered or to vote at a certain address on election day and two weeks after the election you move and then that mail verification comes back and you don't live there well you were still eligible to vote on election day you're not eligible to vote there in the future um, but that's sort of uh, one of the, the complications to that so the reason this whole Civitas lawsuit was moved to next week was this whole issue with attorneys, which has is, is sort of been one of the overlooked stories this week, uh, and it's kind of fascinating. Uh, so very early in the post-election process, the State Board of Elections said that they're going to hire outside attorneys for any sort of election lawsuit that they're, they're involved in. Normally, they would use the Department of Justice and the AG's office. The AG, of course, is Roy Cooper, who has a, a dog in this fight, uh, so they didn't want to use him, so they decided they were going to use outside lawyers. Well, in order for them to use outside lawyers, they have to name the lawyers and then send uh, the request to the governor's office. And the governor's office has to sign off on the fact that you're using the outside lawyers in a certain case and who those lawyers are. Well, Bob Stevens, the governor's uh, lead counsel, responds about a day before the uh, State Board of Elections was supposed to file its response to Civitas in court, saying he's denying the request to hire these uh, three attorneys from this firm, Brooks Pierce. He didn't say why. The speculation is that uh, Brooks Pierce, which is a large firm, has, I think, three or so offices and uh, dozens of attorneys around the state, also includes a guy named Jim Phillips, who happens to be working on Roy Cooper's transition team. Um, apparently this firm has set up a firewall where Phillips wouldn't have anything to do with these attorneys. The attorneys themselves uh, appear to be registered Republicans, um, but ultimately the McCrory folks denied that. So that sort of threw a wrench in the works for the State Board of Elections. Um, they couldn't use outside attorneys, and they're now going to go forward with this with just their in-house attorneys. And that's two people who, as you can imagine, with the State Board of Elections right now, have their hands full um, and are not typically the folks who would be uh, litigating a, an argument in, in open federal court. So they are they filed their uh, extension. They got the extension. And I take it they could use the attorney general's office, but in this case, the attorney general is Roy Cooper. Yeah, so, so they, they don't have the option to use that. And, and typically, the attorney general's office would be a place that has experienced uh, election law attorneys to, to deal with just this sort of matter. So it ends up being it's a instead of having four attorneys for the state board of elections, you just have two. And they're people who are, are overworked and handling a number of other matters at, at this point point. Um, so you could make the argument, one, that there was potentially a conflict of interest for the governor in denying these attorneys, 
but also that he's sort of resulted in the state board of election uh, having a weaker case than they would have if they had gotten these uh, these outside attorneys to join in. The other side of that is that the Civitas folks are represented by uh, Butch Bowers, who is an attorney who's represented the governor and the state in a couple of lawsuits, most notably the voter ID case. Uh, so that throws into this. All of this brings us to Thursday when this is going to be on the docket for uh, federal court. Now they can, I guess, rule in favor of uh, Civitas, which might throw the election into a delay of at least a couple more weeks um, as all these um, same-day registration ballots come back, or they could dismiss it. And if they dismiss it, then what we're looking at is that by Friday, which is the statutory deadline for the State Board of Election to certify the election results, they may have uh, certified it, and we're done. Uh, we'll have a winner by Friday. But that Civitas thing is, when we get into the latter half of next week, that might be the last uh, missing piece to the the puzzle of, of this whole election, um, and it'll be closely watched to see what that happens. Um, that's something where the governor's campaign has not actively talked about their position on the Civitas lawsuit. So it is possible that uh, if the Durham recount happens, which is what they seem to want as sort of their final piece of the puzzle, uh, and the votes don't change substantially, perhaps we could get a concession from Governor McCrory middle of next week when Durham is all said and done. But uh, back on November 8th when we had the election, that starts is starting to feel like a long time ago. I mean, used to be everything led up to the election day. Now it's like election day is halfway, the halfway point or something. I mean, there's just it's all about lawyers and uh, angling. And, uh, yeah, and we're the unlucky ones because I think na- nationwide there really aren't any major races yeah. that have come down like this. Everything is, is resolved, and that's why we've, we've gotten a lot of national attention for this uh, long-standing uh, battle. And in fact, the State Board of Elections meeting I was at this week, there was a Washington Post reporter there, a New York Times reporter. I think somebody from CNN was doing a follow-up story. And uh, the public radio show This American Life was there. So a lot more people than you would normally see at a North Carolina State Board of Elections meeting. It's like North Carolina has become the go-to state for uh, you know networks. and uh, yeah. If you'd like a crazy political story. Right. Call North Carolina. <laughs> well, and then you add to that all the sort of rampant speculation that this might end up in the legislature's lap. That's been some of what the national media has focused yeah, on. Yeah, that was uh, when I ended up having to do CNN last week. Uh, they initially told me they wanted an update on this whole thing, but they very quickly zeroed in on that legislative possibility, which I'm I'm hesitant to speculate too much on because really, I mean, no one has come out and said that they're going to do this. And in fact, this past week, Dallas Woodhouse was probably the most direct answer I've gotten from any Republican on that. He said that will absolutely never happen. Um, so, I mean, never say never because it's North Carolina. But oh. there was a, uh, a a warning from Reverend Barber at the uh, Moral Monday, resurgence of the Moral Monday events uh, this, this past Monday, uh, in which he basically brought that up, the idea of not only the uh, a, a special session, but, <coughs> excuse me, but... Um, you know, just uh, trying to, to uh, just all these challenges to the votes around the state. And Barbara said, if you're if you are going to steal this election, if you're going to try to steal this election, there will be mass uh, civil disobedience everywhere. So, yeah, I imagine uh, if the legislature were to meet with that on their agenda. Uh, you would see uh, a significantly higher number of people than William Barber normally gets for his uh, sit-ins and such. I think of that as the nuclear option. I just can't see them going there. Yeah, and it's one of those things where I think, you know, if the vote tally states the way it is now, it would be hard for them to do that and not have that overturned by a federal court after probably months of wrangling and uncertainty as to who on earth the governor is. So I, I think the court packing thing is probably more of a 
uh, likely option for that special session when they come back in, in December, but we'll see if that happens either. And part of the reason this is even discussed is because this all came up in 2004 with the state superintendent of public instruction. Yeah, and as race. Dallas Woodhouse pointed out this week, that was when Democrats were in charge. Granted, in that case, uh, as best I understand it, they it was the Democratic legislature intervening to support a Democratic candidate who did indeed have a lead in, in the vote count at that point. And it was a whole different issue. I think votes were missing. and uh, There was a challenge to some was, of the provisional votes, I yeah, think. Yeah, it was a, yeah, a challenge to out-of-precinct pr- uh, voting. Out-of-precinct, yeah. By provi- and, and so therefore provisional, yeah. So it's, it's not the same issue, but it, it has – there is a precedent. Okay, well, uh, a lot of factors going into this and uh, keeping us from uh, having a, a pat answer to, uh, uh, no pun intended, to, to what the, uh, the election outcome is. Uh, so we will stay tuned and uh, hope you will too. Uh, we'll take a break and we'll be back to talk about uh, the potential transition once we do have a governor and uh, um, special session next week and uh, a court lawsuit, a court ruling, excuse me, uh, on redistricting. So stay with us. Social Security believes the integrity of our programs is important. To protect the people we serve and the services we offer, we use many tools to identify, prevent, and stop fraud. We identify fraud by using tools that predict the chance of fraud happening. We also have stiff penalties that discourage people from committing fraud. Social Security has zero tolerance for fraud, and so should you. If you suspect someone is committing Social Security fraud, report it online at http colon slash slash oig.ssa.gov slash report, or call the Social Security Fraud Hotline at 1-800-269-0271. And we're back with Domecast. Jordan Schrader here with Colin Campbell and Craig Jarvis. I want to talk real fast about what a transition might look like. Normally, we would be focused on that, uh, almost to the exclusion of everything else, with the potential for a new governor. But because the election's been so unsettled, uh, we haven't had a whole lot of information coming about that. We don't know who any of the new cabinet members might be. Uh, Craig, what are you hearing so far about how the transition is is going? Um, Do they... Where are they working? What's happening? I'm actually still trying to find out where the heck they are. Where's the headquarters? You know, whose office building are they in? Uh, I I don't actually know that answer. But they have been very busy since before the election. Uh, as uh, As one political observer pointed out to me, they always do this before the election, but not too much. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to jinx their uh, race. So there's a little hesitancy to not go all full bore. But uh, Cooper's already announced he has a leadership of a, of a transition team, which includes Christy Jones, a longtime um, a colleague in the AG's office, uh, Jim Phillips, who we mentioned before, who's known Cooper since college, and then uh, Ken Udy with a former uh, Democratic uh, communications strategist and uh, Capstrat owner. Uh, anyway, they're leading up an effort. They're, they are swamped, as you might expect, by people coming out of the woodwork that are either applying for jobs through their website or old friends that maybe Roy hasn't seen in a long time, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. Like, Actually, as Gary Pierce, the, the political consultant I was talking about, said that uh, a campaign is a time when you're uh, fighting your enemies and a, a transition is when you're fighting your friends. So um, I think it gets to be, uh, you know, it, there's a lot to handle. I mean, they've got the uh, inauguration is the first thing that would come up. Um, then they've got cabinet uh, and then just general appointments. I mean, there's just a whole lot of positions that have to be filled. And uh, uh, so they have their work cut out for them, but they're they're charging ahead full steam 
as if uh, they had won the election. <laughs> and of course, we have uh, also a special session coming up. Uh, it, it's basically the second week of December, so it's the week after uh, the week after next. Um, what what needs to be done in special session? Is this going to be all about Hurricane Matthew flooding relief? We hope so. Um, I'm not sure, but uh, I would like to see a one day uh, <laughs> personally session on on uh, flood relief. I mean, this was the, uh, the the governor has had a series of meetings around the state to sort of assess what needs to be done, and they're putting that that together. But the main thing is they want to get funding in place right now. Uh, for uh, for this kind of you know flood relief, they've got some commitment or expect some commitment from federal dollars, and they want to get uh, there. There'll be a gap of some sort, though that will be unmet needs. They're soliciting private donations, and they're going, but they're going to need some money from the legislature, which uh, doesn't begin its session until the end of January. So they needed to move uh, quicker than that. So um, you know, unless there's you know something else that uh, I mean, generally as I understand it. They limit their um, these emergency or special sessions to the, what the governor calls for. Although legally, as I understand it, they could do more, and we'll be watching. Is the state running out of money uh, without a session to allocate money for disaster relief? Do we know what what happens if they if they don't meet? Um, nobody's actually no. declared that this is happening for sure yet. Right. So no, I'm just no, skeptical. R- right. Yeah, I, I don't think they're running out of money. I think they just wanted the mechanism in place. And actually this week I saw one of the uh, one of the Republican leaders, John Bell, is he one of the this Yeah, he's the uh, new majority? House majority leader. Yeah. He was saying, well, you know, we've got all these fires now this eating up the western part of the state as if that's, you know, like one more thing uh, befallen this state. Uh, he's saying, why, why have a flood session now? Why don't we just wait and lump all these disasters together and figure out what we need to do? I, I don't know if he's – if anybody else is in that camp, but uh, I think they've got the money. They had the ra- a big rainy day fund that they felt comfortable with, uh, but they just need to get the, you know, the ball rolling. Yeah. And uh, Steve Troxler, the Agriculture Commissioner, uh, said at a legislative meeting yesterday that he wants to ask the legislature for money for both disasters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume both would come in special session. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely he wants money for Matthew in special session. Uh, we'll stay tuned to see what happens there. Uh, Colin, you wrote about a, a redistricting decision. It was sort of a postscript to an earlier decision that found 28 legislative districts uh, were unconstitutional racial gerrymanders, uh, and what did, what did this latest decision say? Yeah, so the original decision came back in August, and it struck down about 28 uh, House and Senate districts that, uh, much like the congressional districts in the ruling a few months before that, uh, were struck down as, as racial gerrymanders, as you said. Uh, so that resulted in an order for the state legislature to draw new districts in 2017. Now, unlike the congressional redistricting uh, verdict, where that, which I think is actually uh, going before the uh, U.S. Supreme Court soon, uh, this one didn't involve a new election for 2016. They ruled it was uh, a little too late for that um, and that uh, the elections could go forward under the current maps for 2016, but they would have to draw new maps in 2017. So the, the wild card there was we still didn't know from that ruling would that mean special elections in 2017, or would these new maps just go into effect in 2018? Uh, the ruling came down this week on that, and the verdict is in for a 2017 special election. So what we'd end up with is the legislature has until, I think, middle of March in order to draw 
new district lines and any lines that are changed, uh, so including the 28 affected uh, that need to be redrawn, anything that's altered as a result of redrawing those, and it's always hard to redraw one district without affecting all the districts around that. Anything with an altered district then has a special election next fall. So there would be, I believe, a legislative primary in either uh, late August or early September, according to the order, and then the actual election would be in, in November. And apparently the court's hope was that this would uh, sync up with some of the municipal elections that we have on the ballot next year. Of course, North Carolina, off-year elections, pretty much just municipal local races. There's not really any uh, state legislative or statewide races on the, the ballot in 2017. So this would be unusual, and it's uh, certainly a boon to the uh, consultant community. Uh, they will be having lots more opportunities to make money if this uh, election goes forward. Uh, the Republicans, granted, have pointed out that they do have an appeal going on this, and they're hoping the uh, U.S. Supreme Court will overturn the uh, lower court's ruling and uh, restore the current districts, and then we wouldn't have to have uh, a 2017 election. But uh, Democrats, I think, are already sort of massing around this idea. Obviously, the Democrats uh, fell short this year. They wanted to get rid of the supermajority in either the House or the Senate. They failed in doing that. So uh, if Roy Cooper is certified the winner for this next legislative session, uh, the Republicans will do what they want to do. Uh, Roy Cooper may veto some of it, and then they have the votes they need to override his veto without any help from the Democrats. So the Democrats will see 2017 as their opportunity to perhaps do what they couldn't do in 2016 uh, and get enough seats flipped over in one of the chambers to uh, to break the supermajority. Uh, and then you could find uh, a Governor Roy Cooper, if, if he is indeed in office, um, having a little bit more power to, to veto things in 2018, I guess, would be the year. Yep. So I would think that I could foresee maybe there being swing districts that are sort of protected in this in this redrawing where some of the district, the lawmakers who are most at risk might be, might end up seeing their districts be the same so that they don't have to run. Yeah. Again. I mean, I, that's that would be difficult to do, I suppose. Yeah. Cause when they did the congressional redistricting, as you'll recall, all 13 congressional districts had to have a new primary and some didn't change that much, but uh, in order for the Republicans to be able to keep the balance of 10 Republican Congress members, three Democrats, um, they did some pretty, dramatic uh, things to the maps, including moving the 13th district from Raleigh all the way out to Statesville somewhere. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if we have the same result here. Ultimately, the the lawmakers who are going to be affected by special elections, as you mentioned, are going to be drawing the maps. So uh, they may draw them in a way to protect themselves. They may draw them in a way to um, double bunk some Democrats who would then, you know, some of the incumbents would lose their seats in, in that process. So there's all sorts of uh, a strategy that can can go on in this, and I'm sure uh, someone is already working on uh, how to best uh, draw the maps in a way that uh, keep the Republicans in as, as good a shape they can be. Yeah, so all, all these lawmakers thought they were running for a two-year term. Actually, they were running for a one-year term, uh, and uh, so we'll— Lame ducks already, and they haven't even started. <laughs> well, for anybody who was going through election withdrawal already— uh, that, that, Yeah, if you thought the 2016 election was the greatest thing ever, which is probably like 0.001% of the American like population— Like you say, probably the consultants. That's yeah, about, that's, that's about, about that. it. That's about uh, it. Uh, they'll be thrilled. Everyone else will be unhappy to see that this is all going to happen again, and—, and some of the municipalities that I pointed out will actually have to or could potentially need to move their elections because if you look at the city of Raleigh's uh, city council and mayoral election next year, that's scheduled to be in early October. So if they don't move that to November or to the primary, uh, Wake County is going to have three elections in three months, which would be a 
huge pain. I wonder if uh, the fact that this is all of a sudden an election year will uh, lead them to do certain things that would normally what lead this year to look like an election year, whereas the odd numbered years. Hello, teacher uh, raises. Yeah, <laughs> teacher raises could be one. Uh, maybe they'll be have more urgency to address HB2, I suppose. Yeah, that um, could be uh, that, that's. One sort of yeah unexplored aspect of this is that I, I think there was some movement in the legislature from talking to folks that uh, some other changes to HB2 might need to be revisited in the, the long session, uh, but certainly uh, the potential for people having more contested races sooner than they thought they were going to, uh, that would give a more impetus for that because uh, even though HB2 has been largely out of the news, I think there were stories even this week about some of the economic losses and uh, further companies that I think maybe Charlotte or somewhere was going to have, but HB2 prevented the company from coming here. So we'll, we'll continue to see those headlines. And certainly the, the groups pushing for repeal of HB2 will, will continue to push. And uh, they'll want to get out of there sooner, too, I would think, too. Um, oh, yeah, that's, a, to, that's to, good news for us now that I think about yeah, that. That's true. Because yeah, yeah, the last session, long session yes. was one of the longest in right. recent memory, went all the way to late September. Um, if they've got to run for primaries they, in late August, then they, perhaps they'll actually do a budget on time. Right. They can't raise money when they are in session. Is that right? Or I think that's uh, really from lobbyists. They can raise money in general, but yeah. if you're a registered that's lobbyist, right. That's right. you got to get your donations in before the session begins or after it ends. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, we'll uh, keep following all that, uh, but uh, I think that's about it. So let's wrap up uh, with Headliner of the Week when we come back. Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week. We're back with Domecast, and that's right. It's time for headliner of the week. Uh, so only uh, two headliners to choose from uh, today. Uh, Colin, who's your headliner? Well, I'm going with this, uh, this sort of headliner from last week, but since we didn't have a podcast to uh, talk about it on, I'm going with a guy I talked to up in Stokes County by the name of Larry G. Smith. Uh, He ended up in the news uh, through no fault of his own uh, when he showed up in one of these uh, Republican-filed election protests. He was being deemed a convicted felon who had no right to vote. Um, Ultimately, apparently what happened was that uh, the Republicans had used some sort of database that matched uh, early voters with uh, the names of people who were serving active felony sentences. And in this case, there was another Larry G. Smith several counties away, who was indeed an an active felon and just happened to have the same date of birth as uh, Larry G. Smith, our Stokes County voter. Uh, So that ultimately got thrown out fairly quickly by the Stokes County Board of Elections. But I I talked to the non-felon Larry Smith, um, and and he told me, you know, the whole process was kind of disappointing that, you know, you get this call that says your vote's being challenged, and you look up who's challenging it, and it's the local Republican Party. And and in his case, he told me, you know, the sad part is I voted for Pat McCrory. So the Republicans were were going after a guy who voted for their candidate uh, up in Stokes County. Uh, He says there's no hard feelings about it, but this was one of uh, many cases of either mistaken identity Identities or people whose criminal record was sort of misrepresented in in all this, um, on top of the people who were uh, accused of, of double voting, which there seem to be a number of, of inaccuracies there, including a 101-year-old World War II veteran out of Greensboro who was uh, accused of voting in two states, which would have been hard since he lives in a nursing home. Wow. 
All right, Craig, top that. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be hard to uh, top. I'm going to soldier on here. Uh, <clears throat> my nominee is uh, Senator Tom Tillis. Uh, he was in the news this week because he had he has kind of championed something that happened when he was uh, Speaker of the House here in North Carolina, which was called the Justice Reinvestment Act, which in a nutshell was a program to keep get people out of prison into the communities where they can be more closely supervised and reduce the recidivism rate. And it's been very successful. It's being uh, it's held out now as a national model. That's why Tillis wants to uh, promote it. And he was, I guess, maybe talking off the top of his head, so I don't know how serious <clears throat> to take it, but he uh, was telling a group this week that if he can't get a bill like that passed on the national level, he's just not going to be running again. So I got to thinking, well, that brings us to 2020, and he's back in North Carolina, could be a candidate for governor. Hard to believe that uh, his his pitch to voters would be I was not able to get the thing done I wanted to get done so I'm so I'm not running again oh and I'm running for governor right, right. Well, and that's the, that was the most unusual thing to me was that you, you almost never hear a politician say I'm going to get this done or I quit that's usually not the threat they make because yeah. oftentimes they realize they're probably not going to get it done and it may be through no fault of their own but especially in Congress yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. getting so little, anything done there a little bit of hyperbole I guess but we'll uh, you who know, knows. We'll see. Who knows? Yeah, that could be. That was really, uh, really interesting. And uh, uh, okay, so we've got uh, Senator Tom Tillis, and we've got Larry Smith, parentheses, not that Larry Smith. Uh, I'm going to go with Larry Smith. Uh, that's been an interesting sidebar to all of this is uh, how some of these people uh, have been caught up in all these protests um, through a mistaken identity or uh, being misdemeanor. And the, uh, Dallas Woodhouse says there's no apologies needed. You know, we. Uh, Democrats, I guess, called for uh, the Republicans to apologize for the people that they sort of wrongly accused. And they said, you know, no, we're not going to. You know, this wasn't really an inconvenience for you and your vote was fine. And we shouldn't have to have the burden of proof to have 100 percent accurate information before we file these things. So that's where that stands. All right. Well, Larry Smith, uh, at least you got headliner of the week out of it. Uh, (laughs) That's all for Domecast. Uh, Catch us next week. Uh, Thanks a lot. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News & Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 